I don't know. I'm sure I'm playing it wrong somehow. Welcome to Playing It Wrong. Podcast about RPGs, fun, food, more RPGs. Grab your dice, sit back, and get ready to play it wrong. It's episode 12 of Playing It Wrong, and things are going crazy. So what wonderful things have been going on this week? Well, let's see. After two years, I finally got the lawnmower fixed. I know, that has nothing to do with gaming, but hey, it took me two years, but I got it done. Also, the great office reorganization, the geek space, the man cave. Uh, if my measurements and my high school geometry is right, I think there's about a foot of dead space between the hall closet and the office closet, making sort of the office closet my walk-in, sit-in, man cave, geek cave. But I will see about that later, and we will see what else is going on this week. Well, we had a really good session of uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics last week, and I did not die. So Mysterio the Mage is still running strong and blasting away with his spells. Not too too much effect because he's only first level, but hey, still surviving, and that's a big uh, that's a big accomplishment in Dungeon Crawl Classics. The Blight I forgot talked about last time. They've actually sat and talked with some NPCs, which are not an exciting session, but they got some stuff done and some things straightened out, and I'm having to step back and, you know, adventures are guidelines, which kind of is going to go into the whole topic, but first, there's a call-in. We have a very, very special call-in. Hey, Thorne, it's James over from Halfling's Luck. I just listened to your latest episode, uh, uh, Let's Reclaim the Term Grognard, and um. I kind of agree with you on the whole let's reclaim the term grognard because it's definitely got a negative connotation and all it means is grizzled old vet, somebody who's been in the hobby for a while in this case and it shows our roots in wargaming which is awesome. And I am very much in the same boat with you on taking a step back and getting back to actually playing and not getting involved in drama. I think that's what drew me back to Anchor was the fact that I could just drop my thoughts in a voice post and then walk away and get as involved or not involved in drama as I want. And generally speaking, Anchor seems to be pretty drama-free. Anyway, we just wanted to let you know, and I'm enjoying the show. Have a good one, man. Holy crap. James Bond? I'm not worthy! I'm not worthy! I just had to throw that in there. Thank you, James. Thank you very much for calling in. And I think now, more than ever, I think it's a good time to sit back, roll some dice, and have fun. And that's kind of what this episode's about. Well, not really that things, but specifically, but we're going to talk about boxed text. So just in case you don't know, boxed text is that part of a written adventure module where the writer or a ghostwriter or someone has done this pre-programmed bit of text to describe the room the characters just kick the door into. Or if you just want to, like, look online, just watch some Critical Role. Because, really, I watched one freaking episode, and it's like that whole damn thing was nothing but boxed text. Okay, that's just my opinion, and I did that joke before, but I'm going to do it again. I mean, it is a running joke that there is some overly verbose, sometimes overly flowery, flowery, flowery uh, box text, plus box text that is... Well, sometimes not in conjunction or connected to the game mechanics that are in the following text. Or, like, there were two different writers in two different rooms, and they just were each working with an outline and were talking to each other. So, how is it good? How is it bad? 
it's good because at least here's my opinion. Okay, so adventures are guidelines just like the freaking rules. You can go off the track, change stuff up as you want to as a game master. Now the box text is a little tiny macrosm of that because like I said before, some of it's overly verbose. Some of it's like the person who wrote the box text and the person who wrote the game mechanics weren't talking. And sometimes there are things that will distract your players. You know your players better than the person who wrote the module. And if you say there's a shiny idol in the corner that actually does nothing, they will spend half an hour dicking with that shiny idol because the important thing might not have been in the box text. With that being said, box text, though, is an interesting place for you to start off as a game master to describe the room. Just read it and the mechanical parts. Use it for your own inspiration because you not necessarily you not necessarily you can't necessarily come up with a flowery or narrative description of a room every time on the fly, but you can use the box text for inspiration or say do some editing to make it more into your voice so because the players are used to you describing stuff anyway there's no box text for every random encounter every npc that they run across it, it just can't happen it's you know that's a computer game where okay click on this guy and he has three things he says and that's it no you, you got to come up with crap so come up with crap use it for inspiration and really your players know when you're reading it verbatim and you will most likely bore them or at least they will glom on to some detail the writer of the box text thought was neat that really isn't that important so you're gonna have to make up stuff anyway and let's face it some of that box text is really badly edited you go back to the old days just look it up i was reading some earlier today when i was thinking about the show and i was like wow looking at some of it like <clears throat> um silver princess there was one where this there's this short paragraph it's only like two sentences but in essence, it says, this is a storage room. Yeah, there's stuff, there's shelves, there's stuff on the shelves, there's stuff in the room. It's a storage room. You may not need box text for that. Unless there's something very special in the text. In the, well, in the room, I meant. For me, in my home games, when I'm doing something, I like the idea of bullets. So the bullets are also not only doing the mechanical and the key things about for the game mechanics and the tricks and the traps and what's unique, perhaps a few little, shall we say, inspirational adjectives or quick three or four word phrases to throw in there and make it, like I said, the box text takes your players completely out of it, of the way they visualize things. It puts someone else's visualization in the game. So, so in a way, I guess you could call it like DM training wheels, but it's more like you've got like two sets of training wheels on the front or the back. Or since, hey, I say I talk about food, you're going to make a dinner. Well, your dinner is a TV dinner thrown in the microwave for three minutes and running. That's your meal. Well, that's kind of what box text is. It's someone else has done the work to make something creative, and you're just kind of leaning on it. Well, it's okay to lean on it. It's okay to be inspired by it. You know, I like when I'm writing up the adventures on my home games, I like using bullet points. And not only is the bullet points for what's interesting and what the mechanical bits, but also maybe a few short phrases or adjectives for inspiration when describing a room, a creature, or a NPC. And let us face it, all you old grodnards out there, you've got rule books and adventures where you wrote your notes right there in the module. 
kind of harder with these new fancy glossy pages, but the old, good old just paper stuff you could just write your notes in, which we, I don't do that anymore, really. I just like use lots of index cards, use them for bookmarks and scribble the notes on them. But anyway, how do you feel? How do you box text, training wheels, microwave burrito, great, lame, whatever. It's a crutch. Don't always like it. Use it with caution. Read it before you run it. It's part of DM prep, especially if you're leaning on that box text. So what do you do? Think about it. And make the game interesting for your players. And make it for them, not based on what somebody else wrote. That is my rant on box text. So guess what that means? We're coming up about midpoint in the episode. So we're going to slip right into the tomes of ancient forbidden knowledge. I've done enough bumpers on this episode, so we're not going to do this one on this one. So guess what? It's a special one, too, because we are starting out on Supplement 3, Eldritch Sorcery. I mean, uh, Eldritch Wizardry. Sorry, I hadn't even dug the book out yet while I was recording and doing that line. But also, I would like to have a special shout-out as I'm talking about writing in books, because I had to pick up this copy used. And I'd like to thank whoever Robert Holland is for, well, his copy, whoever he is in the world, because he wrote his name in it. But Supplement 3, Eldritch Wizardry, Ancient and Powerful Magic by Gary Gygax and Brian Bloom, with special thanks to Elder Steve Marsh, Dennis Satare, the Great Druid, Jim Ward, and Tim Cass for suggestions and contributions. And who has done the illustration? Dave Sutherland, Tracy Leach, Letch, I don't know, Gary Kwasbik, and Deborah Larson did the cover that, well, modern-day people have freaked out because there's a naked woman on it. Anyway, <clears throat> all right, Supplement 3, Eldritch Wizardry. And this one is going to take us, while uh, Blackmore didn't take that long there's a huge module in the middle, there's lots of wild and crazy stuff in this one. And this one isn't hit a lot in the retro clones. And you're going to see why when we get into it. Probably the meaty parts next episode. But let's look at the forward, which is, once again, not by Gary Gygax, but by the one and only Tim Cask. Third supplement to Dungeons and & Dragons, and was produced as a result of an ever-increasing demand for new material. Yeah, well, well kind of happens. The birth of the Splat book. Okay, like always on these ancient tales, um... I'm not going to read the whole foreword, that's going to be kind of boring, but I'm going to pick some key bits out that are kind of some good advice, such as, as originally conceived, D&D was limited in scope only by the imagination and devotion of game masters everywhere. The supplements have fulfilled the need for fresh ideas and additional stimulation, but somewhere along the line, D&D lost some of its flavor and, became, and began to become predictable. This came about as a result of the proliferation of rule sets. I'm sorry I messed up that word. While this was great for us as a company, it was tough on the DM. When all the players had all the rules in front of them, it became next to impossible to beguile them into danger or mischief. So even in the old days, people were looking at their sheets for a way to get around stuff, not using their imagination. The new concept pioneered within these pages should go a long way towards putting back in some of the mystery, uncertainty, and danger that make D&D the unparalleled challenge it was meant to be. Legend lore once again becomes the invaluable spell it was meant to be. No more will some foolhardy adventurer run down into a dungeon, find something, and immediately know how it works or even what it does. By the same token, no longer will players be able to send some unfortunate hireling to an early demise by forcing him to experiment on his master's goodies. They're talking about magical treasure, not something kinky. 
The introduction of psionic combat is bound to enliven games grown stagnant. Yes, this book is, has psionics in it. It opens up untold possibilities for both players and the DM, and in, in doing so, one of the favorite to topics of science fiction and fantasy writers, the unknown power of the mind. And I butchered that sentence, but it's hard to read. As with the previous two supplements, the material herein contained follows the format of the original three booklets that compromise D&D. Corrections and additions are noted so they can be all integrated into one original with a minimal bother. It's a bother still. It's a, it's, I, I peeked ahead and it shits all over the place. As you will note with the title page, this supplement had many contributors. Such is the nature of the beast. D&D was meant to be a free-willing game, only loosely bound by the parameter of the rules. Let me say that again. A free-willing game, only loosely bound by the parameter of the rules. Eldritch Wizardry goes a long way, fulfilling the original premise of danger, excitement, and uncertainty. May you always make your saving throw. Tim Cask. The Evil Wizard Cask, if you're a fan of Phineas Fingers, and I am. Like the original three books, this one kind of bounces back and forth between things, so it's very hard to follow at times. So I'm just doing it in order, all right? And remember, this is all improv as I read it. So we're only going to do the first part of Psionics because this thing gets totally whack job crazy. So we start off with men and magic characters. Here's an addition. Special category of characters, which crosses all four major player character classes. Those with psionic ability may be found amongst fighting men, magic users, clerics, and even thieves. Further details, blah, blah, blah. Okay. To the major class of clerics, there's also a new subclass, druid. That's right, druids are introduced in this. These are similar to the monster of the same name described in Greyhawk, Supplement 1. And if a subclass is allowed in the campaign, the monster should be expanded to correspond with the new subclass. Now here's a very... very this doesn't have to do with characters, but here's another really good, 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 good paragraph from Eldritch Wizardry. It is important to keep in mind what a monster is. For D&D purposes, a monster is any entity that is controlled by the DM. Player characters and non-player characters controlled by players are not monsters. Everything else is. A monster in D&D can be anything from a Balrog to a kindly, good, lawful cleric. Notice the difference there? The GM does not have non-player characters. The players have non-player characters, i.e. henchmen and hirelings, and everything the DM does is a monster, even if it's good or bad, or for or against the party. All player characters with psionic ability or desire to become druids must be of human origin. So, let's talk about fighting men. Fighting men with psionic ability... I'm going to F this up so many times, it's not even funny. Fighting men with psionic ability are basically attuned to the powers commonly known here as yoga. That's right, fighters know yoga. There are 20 possible devotions, blah, 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 blah. However, for every ability they gain, they must lose the services of one of their followers. And for every of four abilities gained, one point of strength is permanently lost. So, the more... Psionic they get, they lose followers, and they lose strength. That's a fighter loses strength, which is a bad thing to begin with. Magic users with psionic ability will find that will eliminate the necessity for learning some spells, which essentially give them the same powers for a limited duration. This is fortunate for with each psionic ability gained, the magic user 
will lose the ability to memorize one spell. So once again, you gain the psionics, you'll lose something else. That is with gaining the the gaining of the first ability of the magic user will be able to use one less first level spell. When the second ability, he will lose two additional spell levels, and so on and so on. So you'd lose lots and lots of spell slots. Clerics with psionic ability also gain advantage being able to employ many magical powers, but for every psionic ability gained, the cleric will lose two of his other advantages. The dogs are barking. Do you want to play, Chill? Is that it? What? They're frolicking in the background. I think they're playing playing king of the uh, the doggy bed. For he, Okay, so clerics, first they'll lose one spell. Second, the cleric loses the ability to uh, turn undead. And that's pretty nasty. And then we go into explaining about druids, which I'm going to kind of say for next episode because the dogs are getting antsy and it's a good breaking point. So I will break there. Actually, wait, no, I'm not because here's another thing. We explain about druids and then we skip and thieves are on the next page. So we're going to go ahead and go to thieves since it's one of the basic classes. So thieves with psionic potential. Guess what? They're like fighters and have the same penalties as for fighters. So they lose followers, but they lose a point of dexterity for ever, every four abilities gained. So, yeah, you become psychic, you lose a lot of your key abilities. Anyway, that is what I'm going to call it a day. The dogs are frolicking in the background. They're having fun. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm having some fun today. So, with that, hey, if you like this episode, if you like the blog, like us on Facebook. Just look for They Might Be Gazebos. And the blog, theymightbegazebos.blog. If you really like us, just hunt me up on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash theymightbegazebos. And with that, I would like to bid you roll dice, have fun, take, kill monsters and take their stuff, and stay safe out there, folks. Let's keep this day drama free, okay? Thanks for listening.